Hey, First Baptist Church of Keller, Tyler Sulfridge here again, and I am thankful uh, to walk through what I think is one of the most easily applicable passages in all of Scripture. It also just so happens to come from one of my favorite books in the Bible, if we're allowed to have those, the book of Colossians. And Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17 is what we're going to walk through together now. But I think when we look at the book of Colossians, we see one of the most amazing things about the gospel, and it is the fact that it unites people from all walks of life. It unites people from all backgrounds and ethnicities. The the gospel transcends all things that are worldly, and that's what we see in the book of Colossians, and we see that specifically here in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. Paul is the author of the letter to the Colossians, and he addresses those that he calls saints in chapter 1. You guys have probably covered that, but Christian saints are those that have been consecrated, is a high theological word. It essentially just means that Christians are holy, and we are set apart to live lives for God's glory. Saints, biblically speaking, aren't those that gain sainthood from the church or some institution. You guys know that we see that, of course, in Catholicism. They bestow sainthood upon people. But we see in the book of Colossians clearly that all Christians are those that have been given new spiritual life by God through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. The gospel then gives us spiritual life. It is for salvation. But the gospel is for sanctification as well. And that's what we see as we turn the pages from Colossians chapter 1 and 2 to Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians, specifically chapter 3, the Christian saint finds exactly what it looks like to value Jesus supremely and to hold this world in proper perspective. So let's read it now. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes these words, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear also with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So for the sake of our time together, we aren't going to be able to cover every verse here. But these are some of the most practical verses, as we mentioned just a moment ago in Scripture, especially as it pertains to living the Christian life. That first line in verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, shows us that Paul is giving specific instruction to that group that he addresses this letter to back in chapter 1, the saints. Once we have placed our faith in Christ Jesus, he raises us up from spiritual death to spiritual life. That means he reconciles our, the broken relationship that we have with him, where there was separation because of our sin and God's holiness, he rejoins together. To be spiritually dead means that we have a broken relationship with God. We see this all the way back in Genesis with Adam and Eve. They were warned to not eat of that fruit or they would surely die. Yet what happens? You guys know they eat and they continue to live, but they continue to live physically. Of course, we all know that they were driven out, though, and that means that their communion with God, this relationship, perfect and unhindered relationship that they had with God, was broken. And there was nothing in themselves that they could do to undo this, to undo this separation. They couldn't turn back to God. They couldn't take away these sins. Remember, they hid themselves, and God came along, and he clothed them, meaning we see a sacrifice there. Now, because of our sin, we are separated in the same way, with no opportunity for reconciliation except through the work of Jesus on the cross. And Romans chapter 6, verse 4 tells us this, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what Paul calls newness of life. Walking in newness of life is what we see laid before us exactly in chapter 3. This is what he's talking about. To be in a new spiritual state means that you must live a new spiritual life. And so he's about to begin all of the practical advice that he has for Christians. So it must be established what we've already talked about, that this advice is for those that would call themselves Christians. And so what is this advice? Verse 1 continues, this, he says, to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We find the second command in verse 2 when he says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So he says to, in verse 1 and 2, seek the things that are above and set your minds on the things that are above. So those are two commands. We see them back to back, and that means that it's really important. But we see especially that he isn't calling us to set our minds on on the heavenly things just at one moment. He's saying that if you are a new creation, to live this new Christian life, you have to be willfully and constantly doing things in your life to set your mind on the things that are heavenly, on the things that are spiritual. So the idea that he has for us here is that we would take stock of our lives 
that we would consider every everything, every aspect of who we are, everything that we do, what we invest our time and our money and our talents in. And he's saying, make doubly sure that we are using and spending ourselves for the glory of God every day and not for our own selfish ambition or to please every desire and proclivity that we have. One man said this of that word, seek. 23 of the 26 New Testament occurrences of the word seek are Paul's. It refers not to a purely mental or intellectual process, but to a more fundamental orientation of the will. So we are fundamentally everything about our will, our desire, our hope. We are setting it toward Christ. I read a book with one of the students here at First Baptist Keller, and it's called Who is Jesus? It's the same. Uh, it's in the same series of the book that we've been passing out here, What is the Gospel? In the very first chapter, the author is introducing people, and he's introducing many of the answers. If we were to ask those people the, who they say Jesus is, he's saying that these are the answers that are primarily given to the question, Who is Jesus? Some people would, of course, say that Jesus is a good teacher. Others would even say, even in the church at times, that Jesus was a social justice warrior. Some would say that he set, he just lived strictly to set a good moral example. But this book, Who is Jesus, tells us that some people, when we hear that question, Who is Jesus, some would answer the question, He is God, and I orient or I, I order my entire life around who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing. Here in these verses is where we get that call, that command to order our lives around who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing in us and in the world around us. Now that looks differently and how it it comes out in specific context. This summer, some of us here from the church went up to Alaska and worked with some native Alaskan Indians that live in villages. And needless to say, their lives look different than our lives do here in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Still, though, like we said at the beginning, the gospel transcends all cultures. Still, then, the saints are called to be constantly living for God's glory with a heavenly mind. And the contrast in verse 2 is not on things that are on earth. So why is it vital for Christians to take our minds off of the world around us? We can see. Look back at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, "...because you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God." When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear also with him in glory. We see then that it isn't just about looking elsewhere, meaning taking our eyes off of all that the world has to offer. We don't want to practice asceticism for asceticism's sake or be legalistic. It is about placing our eyes on what we value above and beyond anything else. It isn't about just being against things as Christians. We need to be known primarily for what, or better said, who we are for. And this Paul would write in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And I think as we look around in our lives here in Keller and the surrounding communities, we can easily say life is pretty good. But it also, we know, has unimaginable heartbreaks at times. 
and there are disappointments in every turn of the corner that we, we may have disappointments in our careers. We may have heartbreaks in our relationships. But Paul says that everything, we can count that as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. So the appeal in verses 3 and 4 then is meant to demonstrate that where we as Christians are eternally destined to be is with our Lord Jesus who loved us and who gave himself for us. We are meant for glory, for eternity with Christ in an unhindered and unbroken relationship. What then could be more important or more valuable or, or bring more hope and joy even in the midst of life's circumstances, then knowing that our eternal security and position is as safe as the sun's place in heaven itself. This world, then, it has nothing to offer. And the town we live in, like we've been talking about, it is one of the most advantageous places to seek and experience really all that the world has to offer. These things, though, should cause our hearts to well up within us a hope of glory for communion with Christ because the world cannot ultimately satisfy us. Even at its best, we aren't satisfied because we're only satisfied in Christ. We know then from verses 1 through 4 where our hearts and minds are supposed to be. Now, in verses 5 through 11, Paul shows us what it looks like practically to cease from valuing worldly things. His intention is made clear in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, I have never considered myself the sharpest tool in the shed. My favorite part of every textbook growing up was the answer key in the back that gave us the answers to test or homework or something like that. And fortunately, Paul is writing to people just like myself, so he proceeds to give us the answer key. So we don't have to wonder what he means and, and what it means and what it looks like to hold worldly things in proper perspective. He gives us this answer. And the word death here is crucial to understanding the contrast that's being made. Remember in verse 1, he says that we are raised with Christ. That allusion is to the fact, like we said, that we have been given new life through Christ and in Christ. But with a new life means the old things about our sin-filled selves, they must die. So he goes on in verse 5, and he lists those things. Now, this, this list isn't exhaustive, but it gets us a pretty good picture and gives us some pretty good guidelines for those things that are supposed to die. He says, verse 5, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, idolatry is worshiping anything that would take the place of God. The idol, then, would be the object of our worship, and these things can be immoral, as Paul said, they can be impure. But I think it's okay to take it a step further and say that at times we can make idolatry out of neutral things or things that may even be good, but they become idols when we desire them selfishly or we get our desire for them out of balance and we say, I want that. Maybe we don't even have to say it, but we can look and stop and consider our actions and we can say, Wow, I actually want some things more than I even want Christ. And he says, Paul does, this is idolatry. So think about what he's just said then. He said, put to death, therefore, what is in you. And that's a key phrase because all of these sins can fall into the camp of idolatry. We have it then in us. 
our very nature as fallen sinners to long for and be prone to worship things that would set over and in place of God. We are, in our fallen state, lovers of the world and all that it has to offer. One of the great indicators that we are believers is the fact that we start to wrestle with these desires, that we want to put them to death. And he establishes the fact that this includes all of us in verse 7 when he says, In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. He isn't making any exceptions there. It's placed upon us then. When we have that new nature as we are reconciled to God to put to death any desire that is sinful or unprofitable for our souls. We are told in verses 5 and 6 two primary reasons for dealing with our sin seriously. The first is because it is a picture of our old selves, the sinful or the fallen man. And like we've kind of said throughout this, we don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. But we also, we don't expect Christians to act like or to live in or to continually pursue idolatrous behavior or idolatry that is for self-gratification or self-satisfaction. This week at the church, we've practiced a week of fasting, and fasting is given in a lot of ways, but one of them is to remind us that we as believers are to be about denying ourselves. So the second reason is because the wrath of God is kindled against sin. We see the scriptures tell us that we are no longer enemies of God, but we are his friends now. This is what the Bible says about us. We are no longer alienated from him, but we are adopted. We are no longer children of wrath, but we have an eternal inheritance in him. So what could we value? more than that. And so when we look at our lives, what is it that we say in our actions or or perhaps even in our thoughts that we would say, I value this thing more than being a child of God, being friends with God, having no enmity or no no, um, chasm between myself and God. What is it that we at times put in place over him? It's vital then for Christians to put away, as we see in verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from our mouths. Especially, and here's the third reason we find for keeping sin out of our lives, verse 10, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Because of the sin that so impacts all of us, the image of God though we are still his image bearers, is at very best marred and distorted. But God, so says Ephesians 2.4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 is like that when Paul writes again, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God the Father, through the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross, is undoing the consequences of sin we have inherited through our first parents, Adam and Eve, from the Garden of Eden. And we are called then as Christians to demonstrate God's image, namely his character, to the world around us. And we've seen in these verses so clearly that we cannot do that if we are still seeking the world or selfish passions. 
Of course, there's one more section that we've read, and that's what we're going to cover now, verses 12 through 17. And here it is put before us what it looks like to display this new self, the new nature. This is where we'll close our time together today, but Paul writes in verse 12, put on then. The illustration is clear. Like putting on clothes, we have to choose the appropriate attire for what we are seeking to do, what we want to accomplish, or what we want to communicate. The weather is finally starting to change as summer gives way to fall, and here in a couple weeks, fall will give way to winter. And what do we do? We start wearing different clothes. If you look outside in the morning and you see people walking by, it's a pretty good indicator of what the weather's doing. Now, I I say that, but here in Texas, it gets a little weird because somehow still in August and September and October, people in Texas are wearing hoodies and long sleeve shirts, and I, I can barely make it out of the house without the air conditioning. But we see that when we look at people's clothes, it tells us something about them or or what's going on around them. So if we are, as he says, holy and beloved, then it is our responsibility, it's our purpose, it's what we live for to display, like Jesus, what he says here, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These things, just like they were and are still in Jesus, we are called to display as obviously as the clothes that we have on our backs at this moment. Showing compassion to the needy around us, acting kindly toward those that are challenging, displaying humility and meekness and patience with our church family. These are all things that we can do on a daily and a weekly and a monthly and a yearly basis to demonstrate these characteristics to the world around us. The scriptures say they will know you by your love for one another. And that's what he says in verse 13. He says, you are called to bear with one another. Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So the role of the church is to build one another up, to encourage each other. According to Hebrews, it's to spur each other on toward love and good works. But that means that we must think less of ourselves and we must seek God's glory first and the good of others. So let me synthesize for the sake of time these next few verses here. You are, according to Colossians, as holy saints to display compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, peace, gratitude, a teachable spirit, encouragement, and a heart filled with worship. Just like the clothes that we're wearing is plain and obvious for all to see, so the fruit of God's transforming our hearts and transcending our lives through Jesus Christ is to be ever on display for the world to see. And we'll close here in verse 17. Paul writes, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. After reading a passage like this, and especially the way Paul ends this section in verse 17, and I would encourage you to go back and read the letter to the Colossians. It only takes about 15 minutes, all four chapters. But we have to ask ourselves this, is Jesus really the center of our lives? 
I've worked with my dad a little bit in my life, and I'm a student, so my hands look significantly different than his do, and he's done construction his whole life, so my hands may be maybe a little bit more soft uh, than his, but one of the tools that I've used and I've seen him use is a plumb line. A plumb line is a weight attached to a string, and because of the weight and gravity, the weight will hold the string straight to give you a perfect reference for if a wall or a structure is centered. So what we see in Colossians chapter 3 is a plumb line. And if we have a moment to self-reflect, and if we search our hearts, and if we are intent in prayer, then we find where our hearts really are. We find what we truly value, and we find the exact place that we have Jesus in in our lives. And I think all of us, after reading Colossians chapter 3, after walking through the scriptures, would say, I need to humbly come to God, and I need to repent, for I have valued things more than Christ. Let's do that now. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for what it shows us about our own hearts, but especially just how great you are and how worthy you are, Lord, of our praise, our gratitude, our whole lives. And so, Father, I just ask for in my own heart, I pray that you would forgive me for those times when I have valued things in an idolatrous way, when I have placed them above you, Lord. For we see in Colossians chapter 3, there is nothing greater than you. There is no thing more valuable than you. There is nothing that could bring satisfaction and hope and joy and peace like you do for all of eternity, Lord. And so we just in this moment look forward to that day when we will eternally be with you and the relationship that we have with you will no longer be broken and it'll no longer be hindered, Lord. That's what we see in Colossians. And so, Father, I just I thank you for that today, for that reminder in my life. And I pray, Lord, that you would impact our whole lives through your word and your spirit applying it to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.